0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 123. As we've been doing for some time, we're looking at a, a passage that's kind of out of our uh, regular series, given that it's a Sunday that, uh, that we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And the psalm we're looking at, Psalm 123, is part of, part of a series of psalms called the Songs of Ascent. These psalms spanning... From number 121 through 134, uh, it's commonly accepted were, were used by God's people as they went up to Jerusalem for the feasts They were com- where they were commanded to appear uh, before the temple. And on their way, they would sing these psalms as their confessions of faith, reminding one another of how faithful God is and how their hope is resting in Him alone. Psalm 123, it's only four stanzas, but... But what a beautiful confession. Unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until He has mercy upon us. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy on us. For we are exceedingly filled with contempt Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorn of those who are at ease, with the contempt of the proud. Amen. Beloved of God the Father through Christ his Son, what is the context in which this psalm was written? What prompted the psalmist to pen these words? It kind of, as you read these words, you you want to ask that question, don't you? What was the crisis? What was prompting this heartfelt plea? Truth of the matter is, we're not sure. God did not see fit to have that context spelled out for us. But according to Jewish tradition, this psalm was written after the exile. God having restored his people to the land of promise, they had peace more or less with the kingdom that was reigning over them, the kingdom of Persia. And they came hoping for a a new age of blessing, a new age of experiencing God's grace. But then, the enemies of God almost immediately began rising up against them. Leaders among the Jews cooperated with those enemies, giving them access to the people of God, actively preventing the rebuilding and the restoration to a position of influence of the city of God. It was frustrating to say the least. And then God sent Nehemiah, a man of, of influence, a man of conviction and power. Nehemiah urged them to rebuild the city, to seek after God's blessing, to stand firm on the promises that he had given to them. And they were eager. But then, but then, according to Nehemiah 2, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard of this, They laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? It was discouraging to have these powerful men outside of God's people coming and and mocking them, laughing at them, scorning their efforts. Nevertheless, at Nehemiah's insistence, they built. They began clearing the rubble, establishing the foundations, uh, salvaging the old stonework, rebuilding the gates, until it so happened when Senbalat heard that the, we were rebuilding the wall, he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish? Stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. And he said whatever they build. If even a fox goes up on it. He will break down their stone wall. Mockery. Ridicule of the people of God. And then the enemy grew angry. Began threatening the people of God. Began Promising to attack and to turn the king against them. In response to such persistent wickedness and scorn, how could the people of God not be discouraged? How could they avoid feeling that they were all alone, that they were beset upon, that there was no help for them? And it was in response then to that kind of wickedness whether it was written at that time or simply taken up on their lips at that point, that God's people prayed this prayer and many like it, acknowledging that they themselves were far too weak to deal with such enemies, acknowledging that they could not buoy up their own spirits and keep their hands hard at the task before them, but confessing that their hope and their help and their strength had to be found in the Lord. And folks, that's a prayer that we need to take into consideration. Because we live in the midst of a world that absolutely despises everything we stand for. A tragedy hits our nation. And folks take to social media and say our thoughts and prayers are going out because of this situation. And what do the cultural movers and shakers of our land say? What good is that? Why bother thoughts and prayers? How about sending money? How about sending help? What good is your prayer? They mock our faith. They mock our God. And they mock our efforts to do what is right, to pursue what is just and merciful. How can we not be discouraged in the face of this increasing and ever-growing onslaught of opposition against God and His people. Well, the psalm shows us that God's servant must answer worldly scorn. Not by growing indignant, not by returning insult for insult and injury for injury. Not by playing the games of the world, not at all, and certainly not by hiding in some isolated community where we don't need to deal with the world. No, God's servant answers worldly scorn by seeking the help of the Savior. That is what this psalm teaches us and that's the lesson we need to take hold of. God's servant answers worldly scorn by seeking the help of the Savior and that begins, it always begins by resting confidently in the Lord's mercy. Notice the first thing that we see in this psalm. Unto you I lift up my eyes. He focuses on the one who is able to offer help, seeking one who can rescue, acknowledging that he himself is not sufficient. But our friend doesn't seek aimlessly, looking just for someone, anyone who can help. No, no. He seeks the help that he knows is there in heaven. It is God in whom he trusts. He doesn't unexpectedly stumble on some help. He seeks out the Lord, desiring the help that he knows is found there. Because God is the one who dwells in the heavens. Our psalmist is looking for help that is found in an exalted place. A place that is is high above all the powers and principalities of this world. Help that is greater than the most determined and the strongest among our enemies here below. It's hard to overstate the significance of calling God the one who sits in heaven. Psalm 2 uses that imagery to emphasize that this is the God who is able to laugh at all the threats and the taunts of the mightiest men of the world because he judges all of the men of the world, he shatters those who persist in their wicked ways. Psalm 11 reminds us that God, because He sits in heaven, He sees everything. He sees the the deeds of every man and also their hearts. Psalm 115 emphasizes that God's heavenly throne reveals His absolute power. No one can veto His decisions. No one can second-guess His decrees because our God is in heaven and He does whatever He pleases. He's in heaven. There's no need too great for Him to meet. There's no problem too hard for Him to solve. There is no darkness too deep for Him to shine the light of His love and His wisdom and His perfection over it. This God is entirely sufficient to meet the needs of His people. That's the confidence that moves the psalmist to pray this prayer. And that same confidence must move us in the midst of our darkest night. And our confidence must be of the same kind as that which the psalmist describes. In verse 2, he uses two similes to help us understand how he is trusting in the Lord. Children, you remember what a simile is? It's a comparison that takes something that we know and uses that to illustrate that which we maybe don't know as much. It's a like or as. X is like Y. This is like that. So the first simile he uses is as the eyes of a servant of servants look to the hands of their masters so our eyes look to the Lord. Now in this context servants that refers to slaves. These weren't independent contractors, they weren't free to come and go and work 8-hour shifts and call off for sick days and vacations. No, they were committed 100% of the time with 100% of their effort to serve their masters. And consequently they depended entirely Upon their masters. So why would such a servant look to the hand of his master? Well, that hand. That hand is representative of everything the master does with regard to his servant. By the master's hand, the servant received his food, his clothing, his shelter. By the master's hand, he received instruction in the tasks that he was to do. By the master's hand, he received security, protection. Protection. So it was the master's hand that determined the servant's well-being. If the master's hand provided generously, then he would be healthy and strong and well. But if the master's hand was stingy, he would go to bed with an empty stomach and would work hard through his weakness. Should the master's hand teach skillfully, the servant would gain skill that would serve him well throughout life. But if the master should withhold instruction then he would stumble about, never quite knowing what he was doing or how he should do it. If the master's hand was harsh toward his servant, his life would be miserable. But if the master's hand was gentle and kind, then his life would be pleasant. So the servant watched his master's hand carefully, knowing that that hand represented everything that he needed and would determine his well-being. So does the psalmist look to the hand of the Lord. Likewise, the second simile, as the, the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress. It's, it's a synonym, repeating the same thought. As for the servant, so for the maidservant. Her mistress's hand is the source of all of her good. And the same, the same hand that, that could bring such blessing could also bring misery. So she must look to her mistress's hand, knowing that from there comes all of her help, all of her hope, all of her strength. That, says the psalmist, is how I look to the Lord. He is the one from whom my very life flows. Whatever instruction I receive, He has ordained that I should receive it. Whatever provision I receive for body and for soul, it comes from His might. It comes according to His will. There is nothing I receive apart from Him. And also the people and events that serve to discipline and direct me. God has ordained every last one of them. And He is using them to fulfill His purposes in my life. Therefore, says the psalmist, I look to Him persistently, earnestly, confidently. Do you trust the Lord like that? With that kind of assurance? With that kind of perseverance? Do you have confidence, absolute confidence, that He will provide whatever you need? That He will protect you from whatever threatens. That He will do what is good for you. Do you believe that He loves you enough to do it? When you pray, do you expect someone to answer? And to meet the need for which you pray? Do you look to the Lord with confidence in His ability and in His love? My friends, you must... You must because he does have the ability to provide all that you need. His wisdom designed you and everything that this world holds. His will determined what history would hold. His might set in motion and provides perfectly for everything that lives, everything that moves, everything that has being. There is nothing, absolutely nothing that he is unable to do to bless you. And His love for those who trust Him is absolute. If you ever doubt that, think on this table before us today. Think on the bread which reveals to us how Christ allowed His body to be broken that we might be made whole. On that wine that shows how His blood was poured out so that we might be gathered into the Lord. And that act of That act of consuming which we do together, reminding us that God has united us to a people, to a congregation, so that we don't have to go through life alone, so that we don't have to face those struggles on our own, but we can do so with the people who love the Lord and whom He loves, whom He has set in our life to help us. Our God loves us absolutely. The Lord's Supper shows us that. And it's in that confidence that we with the psalmist seek His mercy. Look at the last part of verse 2. So our eyes look to the Lord our God until He has mercy upon us. That's what the psalmist most needed, most desired. God's mercy. Help freely given. Rescue from the situation that had imprisoned him. As we'll see in the rest of this psalm, this man of God felt alone. It seemed like no one could rescue him. It seemed like he was a a, a target for the unrelenting enemies of God. And yet he believed that God was able to help him, that God desired to help him. And so he resolved to look to God until he beheld the help that God sent. That's our calling. Because we need the help of God just as much as did that saint of old who wrote this psalm. We need His provision to sustain us every day. We need His protection from enemies we can't even see. We need His instruction to know how we ought to live and how we should live before Him. If He should turn His back on us even for one moment, we would be utterly lost. So we must look to Him for His mercy, for His help, for His provision. Echoing the confession of the psalmist that we rest confidently in the Lord's mercy. And then we must follow the psalmist in moving our gaze downward. To recognize the plight that surrounds us. Because until we see that, until we understand the misery in which we live, we can't trust God the way we must. And so, our second point, our final point, is that God's servant reveals the abundance of the world's scorn. Verse 3 begins with a vivid plea Have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy on us. Three words in the Hebrew, and two of them are identical. Hinenu Yahweh. Hinenu. A simple prayer, but a prayer that has to stand at the heart of our faith. In fact, the simplicity of this prayer highlights its honesty. Our friend here is not trying to put on a show. He's not looking, a, looking to find a pulpit from which to grandstand. He's simply seeking what he needs to sustain him. And what he needs, if you strip it all away, if you get rid of all the details, all the uh, gingerbread, what he needs is mercy. Of the sort that only Yahweh, only the Lord can provide. Yahweh. The name means He is. He is the God who is ever present. Never has there been a time when He was not. He created time. And every situation in which we find ourselves, every struggle that we face, also every celebration, He's there. He beholds it all. In fact, He ordained it all. This is the God who freed Israel from their slavery in Egypt and he did it amazingly he came came there through through a man who acknowledged that he was not a public speaker he was not a powerful man in fact he was a man who ran from his troubles but god used that man to reveal his might in a way which utterly demolished all of the idols and false gods of egypt And then he led his people out through the most unlikely path possible. And not only did he lead them out through the depths of the Red Sea, but he destroyed their enemies entirely behind him. And then he sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness, teaching them lessons that would lead them to trust in him overcoming their unbelief and their stubbornness, teaching their children to serve Him more faithfully than they had done until finally He brought them into that land of promise that He had assured them was theirs even as He judged those who rejected Him. And folks, that's exactly what He's doing for us. Exactly what He's promised to do for us. This is the God who has promised to deliver us from our sin and to walk with us through the wilderness of this life and to use every struggle, every bit of discomfort and pain and hurt to draw us back to Him. That we might recognize that our help lies not with men, lies not with government programs, lies not with experts here and there. No, our help and our hope and our deliverance lies in heaven with God, with His mercy. And we desperately need His mercy. The psalmist says Israel is faced with contempt. See, he's not speaking merely of his own struggle. He's praying on behalf of the whole people of Israel. The whole ancient church. Which was suffering. Not not just from physical oppression or financial ruin. They're suffering from contempt. Men are regarding them with open hatred. They scorn the people of God for being foolish and weak and... Not even worthy of their respect. And with this, says the psalmist, his soul is exceedingly filled. A limit has been reached in the heart of God's people. They feel as though they cannot stand any more of this scorn. Just once more, let someone roll his eyes or shake his head or whisper about our folly. Just once more, let someone feel contempt and I don't know how I can stand it. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe, maybe when you were young and in school and all the athletic kids seemed to naturally thrive in sports but, but you dreaded phys ed or team sports knowing that you would be mocked or maybe maybe it seemed like your classmates just naturally aced everything and you had to struggle just to maintain a C average or maybe the popular kids always seemed to do what was absolutely cool with no effort whatsoever but you were always out of style always out of the loop always a little behind it's hard to perceive the scorn of those around you it's even harder When the reason for that scorn is not because of your athletic ability or your academic credentials, but because of your faith in God, which ought to mean the most to you, the one thing that you cannot turn aside from. And all the more so when we see who it is that's hurling these scornful remarks. The slander is spoken by those who are at ease, those who seem to have no opposition, those who seem to our eyes to have no worries, no lack. The slander is celebrated by the proud. They're so full of themselves. They think that they've got everything together and they certainly project that image. What we can't see is that they're walking proudly and at ease right down the path to destruction But the whole time they give the impression of those who are well put together and well at ease. As they shake their heads at us and mock us and call us fools. Folks, this happens. This is the world in which we live. Those who are separated from God in their hearts, they know that they're in trouble. But they project that image of one who has it all together, who has no worries, no fears, no doubts. And so when we struggle, when we have a hard time, we feel entirely alone. Like we're the only ones who've dealt with it. And so their scorn, their scorn heaps on top of the sin that we've experienced in ourselves and heaps on top of the struggle that we've seen in our own life. And it makes us wonder, it makes us doubt, am I doing something wrong? Is there something to their scorn? And then we we hate the situation all the more because we know we must trust the Lord. And they're making us doubt it. Folks, this is the world in which we live. Always, those who strive to live for God will be persecuted. It's guaranteed. It might be through slanderous words. It might be through rejection and bitterness. It might be with physical oppression. But one way or another, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. but our God understands. Again, if you ever doubt that, look at the Lord's table. What suffering Jesus endured. Beaten and bloody, He was lashed with cruel whips. He was pummeled by the fists of men. He hung agonizing on the cross, struggling for each breath. And it was even worse for Him because God rejected Him because of our sin, God turned out the light of His countenance so that He must cry, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? He understands the absolute worst that we might be able to endure to face in this world. He understands. And that means we can pray with confidence that He will hear And that He will have compassion. That He will show mercy. Look around you. The scorn of this world for the likes of you is tangible. And it's only increased by the pain that we heap upon ourselves through our own sin. But this psalm reminds us In the face of that scorn, in the face of that hurt, in the midst of that misery, there is help. Help that's greater than any man, woman, or child on this earth can provide. Because we rest confidently in the mercy of the Lord, in what He can provide, in the love that He is sure to show. So my friends, we must trust in His mercy. We must pray persistently daily for his help. We must study this word so that we understand how great he is and how abundant it is his love and how sure it is that he will hear and answer our prayer. Have mercy on us, O oh Lord, have mercy on us. And no matter what your need, no matter what your misery, no matter what your struggle, The sacrament before us reminds us God understands. God loves you enough to hear and to help. And if God went that far to show His love for us, if He went that far to rescue us from the death and the destruction that we deserved, there is no need that we might have that He will not meet. God's servants all must answer worldly scorn. And we must answer it by seeking the help of our Savior. May God lead us to seek. And by grace through Christ may we find. For in Christ alone is our hope daily and eternal to be found. Amen. Let's pray. O oh Lord our God, You are so great Indeed, You are the one in heaven who sees all that happens, who understands the full depth of the need Your people experience and who loved us enough to send Your Son to die for us. Father, we stand in awe of Your mercy and we pray that You would help us to trust in You wholeheartedly. And as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, we pray that You would use that sacrament to remind us where our hope is found and how certain and sure that hope is. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.